Heavenly Father, through it all, no matter what we're going through, as long as we keep our eyes on you, we know that it is well. And we can sing that it is well with my soul, because we have you in our life. So today, we continue our series on the book of Revelation. We're drawing to its end, only two more weeks after today. And as we come to today's installment, we come to the last of the great judgments, known as the seven bowls or the seven plagues. And if you're just joining us, or if you've been here for the entire series, then you're just trying to keep all of these moving parts together in your head. Here's the gist of what's going on. John has received a series of visions that he was told to write down for the church, the church of his day, and also because, of much, of, because much of what's revealed is about what's going to take place at the end of time for the church throughout time, including the church of today. And much of Revelation is a series of plagues and judgments and disasters at the end of time designed to do two things to finally reveal and to unleash God's just and deserved wrath against all that is evil and second through those events to extend one last opportunity for people to turn away from evil and to turn toward God to repent, to seek forgiveness, to be restored to a relationship with him. And when that last time, when that last effort ends, the world ends. And when at that point, Jesus comes back and all evil is ultimately destroyed and judgment is rendered. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack along the way, including that we've already talked about the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, the tribulation, and there's still a lot more to come. But the heart of the book is the completion of God's great redemptive drama, his simultaneous calling of the world back to himself and also calling the world to account. So today, as mentioned, we come to the last of God's great judgments, the last set of disasters that come upon the world to not only judge the world, but to get its attention in order to try and save it. They're dramatic, they're severe, and they need to be because the world's, this is the world's last chance to turn back to him. God's last great effort to get the world's attention. John's vision has already detailed the seven warnings to the seven churches. Then came the seven visions of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, each increasing in its intensity and the extent of the calamity. But now we come to the end of God's efforts, the seven plagues. They are the worst and the most severe of them all. And here's how John records them in his vision. Then I saw in heaven. There we go. 
Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Then I looked up and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed the pouring out of the seven plagues. So here we have the scene. In, in heaven, just before the seven last plagues at the end of time are unleashed by those seven angels. And it's an interesting scene because it begins with each of the seven angels not only carrying their assigned plague, but by being handed a bowl filled with God's wrath. Now, we've read about these bowls before. Back in chapter 5 of Revelation, they're described as being held by the members of the heavenly court, and they were filled with the prayers of God's people. Not just any prayers, though, but the prayers crying out for justice. Here's how they were, in fact, described back then. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They, they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. To the prayers of God's people, particularly the martyrs, those who had been persecuted and tortured and killed, prayers that cried for vengeance and justice, were told to wait until all who had yet to be martyred for their faith had joined them. Now, in Revelation, that time in John's vision of the future has come to place. The bowls of prayers crying out to God were now filled with God's response to those prayers. And the response was wrath against all that was evil. Which brings us to the plagues themselves. Here's how John describes the first six of the seven plagues. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's Wrath. So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all water saying, you are just, O holy one, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since 
they had shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are just and true. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins. And turn to God and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. But they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. There are three things to take note of in what we just read. Number one, as the last of the plagues, these are the most intense. The seven seals, if you remember, affected a fourth of the earth and its inhabitants. The seven trumpets affected a third of the earth and its inhabitants. But here, these plagues, the effect is worldwide for each of them. And second, it is made clear that the angelic announcements that was happening was just. All of the judgments were just and true. The punishment fit the crime. And that's an important point because we tend to think that, that any judgment from God is somehow unjust. That we think that God is all love and, and there's nothing ever any judgment there. But that's, that it's bad for God to re react in any way that's wrathful, punishing, judging, or condemning. No matter what you've heard, judgment is always his last resort but there comes a time when God determines that there is no other recourse but divine judgment. In fact, to not respond with wrath would have him cease to be a just God that he is. It, it reminds me of something I read once from a Yale theologian, Miroslav Volf. He would see he was born in Croatia, which shares a similar story to what's going on in the world right now with with Ukraine. You, 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 Croatia was breaking away from Yugoslavia to try and gain their independence, and he, he lived through the nightmare of ethnic strife in the former Yugoslavia, a time that included the destruction of churches, the raping of women, the murdering of innocent people. And he once thought that wrath and the anger were beneath God. But he said he came to realize his view of God had been wrong. Let me actually read you his words. I used to think that the wrath of God was, was that wrath was unworthy of God. I mean, isn't, isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. 
My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in my former Yugoslavia, the, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By, by doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. You see, that's what happens. Not only throughout history, but ultimately, finally, definitively at the end of time. Which is why these final plagues were the most intense, but also just. And then finally, did you notice what came up time and time again? They were consistently met with a lack of repentance. Let me read it again. It says, They did not repent of their sins to turn to God and to give Him glory. And then again, they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. It's unthinkable, isn't it? Here is God at the end of time unleashing his last, most severe judgments to get the world's attention, to save the world from itself, to give them a chance to avoid utter, complete destruction of it because of their evil. And the people still wouldn't repent. It wouldn't change. They just cursed God for doing it. Which goes to show that whether God acts with mercy or with justice, some simply refuse to believe. But they could have. And it was God's desire that they would repent and return to him. Now before we get to the seventh and final plague, John's vision takes him to another response of these final plagues, or at least to the first six of them, specifically the response of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the so-called unholy trinity that, was dom that will be dominating the world at the end of time. And here's what John saw. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord 
on that great judgment day of the God Almighty. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and all and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. The essence of what we just read is the response to the final round of plagues was the unleashing of demonic spirits turned loose by Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet to engage in one last propaganda campaign to deceive the rulers of the world and to convince them that the world to accept and to support the cause of evil and then to gather them together to marshal their forces and then attempt to fight one final battle against God. And the place they were to gather to take that last stand was called Armageddon, which literally means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, there is a place in Israel known as Megiddo, and it has been the site of many significant battles throughout history. But Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo, is literally is no mountain at all. It's, it's not a geographical place we're talking about here, but a symbolic reference to the final overthrow of evil by God, a final conflict. But before we move on, it's interesting that into that scene, Jesus interjects this into John's vision. Look, if you notice, it's in red. This is Jesus speaking to us. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are those who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so that they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed in the midst of the final plagues the, in the midst of the final battle what the people of god should be looking for preparing for is the coming of jesus the end times begin when jesus completed his first coming following his death resurrection and ascension we are to be prepared for the second coming of jesus at any moment Jesus reminds John in his vision to be ready, to not be taken by surprise. This isn't about clothing. The, the idea is that we should live our lives in such a way that no matter when all of these end time events happen, no matter when Jesus returns, we will be living in such a way that we'll be ready. We will be spiritually clothed. We won't be caught spiritually naked. And if, if you're, maybe if you're like me, you may be wondering why. Why in the midst of so many clear and horrific signs and events of the end of time, why are we constantly or continually told that we're going to be surprised by the second coming of Jesus? I mean, you see all of these signs, one would think you wouldn't be surprised, that you'd be ready for it. So why do they say to keep being ready? How can we not know that we are in the end of times? But then it came to me in a way that was kind of sobering to think about. It will be a surprise. It will be a shock to many, if not most of the world, because we become so numb to the ways of the world. 
so immersed in its evil, so accustomed to its ways, so reflective of its morals that we won't even realize that it's the end of time. Our consciences will be so deadened, so compromised, that we really won't realize the times in which we live. So let me ask this question. If Jesus returned today, would you be shocked? Would you be ready? Most of the world won't be ready and will be shocked. But it's because the signs and events haven't happened or, it, or because we are so in the world and of the world that we can't see the world for what it is and where it is. Which brings us to the seventh and final plague. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple, saying, It is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck, the worst since people had been placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon was split into three sections, and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared, and all the mountains were leveled. There was a there was terrible hailstorm, and hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. There is the final plague. Not just an earthquake, bad as that was, but great hailstones. But why does, why does John bring up Babylon here? Why is an ancient city, which no longer exists, being brought up as being destroyed at the end of time? Why is naming it so decisive to what God is trying to do here? Why is the seventh and final plague the ultimate destruction of Babylon? Because Babylon is more than just Babylon. Babylon became synonymous with the political and religious systems of the world arrayed against God and his people. It's symbolic of those nations and powers and leaders and people who go to war against God and God's people, which, which will help make sense of where John's vision takes him and us next. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that's going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. And, and in her hand, she held a gold goblet 
full of obscenities and impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Here we have John experiencing in, in his vision the symbolic image of the state of the world. The woman reflecting Babylon with the character of a, of a brazen prostitute trying to seduce the world. She's presented as, as being alluring, dressed in purple and wearing expensive jewelry, but in truth, she's revolting, drinking sewage from a cup and drunk on human blood. She's riding the dragon of, of seven head, that has seven heads and ten horns, which are identified earlier in John's vision as the Antichrist. The idea is to reveal her for who and what she really is. Also to present her in contrast to the other woman mentioned in Revelation, which we talked about weeks ago. The woman who is virtuous, the one representing the church, the woman who gave birth to the Messiah, and as a result, all of the offspring who have followed after him. The one is pictured throughout the Bible as the bride of Christ as opposed to the one we see here portrayed as a harlot. So what does all this mean? The angel explains it to John. Let's keep reading and see what he says. Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now, and yet... He will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. The people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This, this calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where, a, where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come. But his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together, they will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and king of all kings and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, so the words of God will be fulfilled. 
And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Now that's a lot to unpack. Let, let me see if I can hit the highlights of it. First, the angel recounts, as we talked about last week, how the Antichrist is meant to be a counterfeit of Jesus, even to the point of imitating the death and resurrection of Jesus. This will encourage the world to follow and to worship the Antichrist. The world has been dominated by Babylons and Romes throughout history. It's, and it's also not about looking for a city that's been built on seven hills, of which, ironically, there are many. Seattle, Washington was a city built on seven hills. Albany, New York, Cincinnati, San Francisco, Tallahassee, and maybe the most suspicious of them all, Kernersville, North Carolina. See, the, it's actually true. Uh, the, the point is to see Babylon and, and then Rome as prototypes of the world order to come. Every age has its centers of materialism, power, immorality, and corruption that draw people away from God and threaten his people, all of them building towards a final manifestation at the end of time led by the Antichrist. The ten kings will arise at the end of time to serve the beast and to exert the rule of the beast throughout the entire world. Satan has no love for anyone or anything on this earth, including those who follow him. His only desire is to see as many people separated from God as possible. He will gladly sacrifice Babylon, the rulers of the world, the empires of the world, the people of the world, in his fight against God. And that's how this section of Revelation ends, with the utter fall of Babylon. And John writes and says, After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen. The idea of Babylon as a symbol of the world's collective community and power and politics and government aligned against God. Then following the declaration of that fall comes the warning not to be seduced by what the Babylons of the world have to offer. And that will be the great temptation to align yourself with what brings luxury it's what, what brings pleasure, which, what brings materialistic gain. To commit adultery with her as if a prostitute. See, here's a taste of how it is, how it's described in John's vision. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. And then, directly addressing Babylon, it's herself. John says this, You deceive the nations with your sorceries. In, the street, in your streets flowed the blood of the prophets of God, God's holy people, and the blood of the people slaughtered all over the world. Which makes the call on God's people clear. And John records his vision. The angel says, Then I heard another, another voice calling from heaven come away from her my people 
Do not take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. See, that will be the great temptation. Not just at the end of time, but for any time, which is to embrace the world and all that this world has to offer, engaging in whatever spiritual compromise is called for to gain what this world offers, to sleep with the world for whatever is felt might be gained, callous to the reality that you are sacrificing your very soul in doing so. That brings us to the end of this section of Revelation. Now, we only have two more sections to cover, but this one sets the stage for all that's about to happen. Because what's going to happen is the end, the very end, the last chapter in the story of life on this planet. Heavenly Father, thank you for the messages that you give us in Revelation. Thank you for the ability that we have to study them, to realize that, that they're not hidden messages, that they're not secret messages, that you tell us to study them and to learn from them. Help us to not be taken in by the world and what this world has to offer. Help us to submit everything we have to you so that when the end comes, we will be ready for it. We will be ready when you come and we will be a shining light to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.